Welcome, welcome to the D-Web podcast. It's been a crazy last week. I woke up yesterday and two different projects that were already in production had integrated QV Dev's video streaming site. Uh, Iris by Marty Malmi, who's the very first contributor to Satoshi on Bitcoin. And then I believe James from Raygun, which is a coding IDE in the browser built on top of Gun. So uh, two projects that are already launched just overnight. <laughs> by, the time I, by the time I went to bed and then I woke up, had integrated peer-to-peer -peer video decentralized streaming um, because of QV Dev's work on that. We were going to have them on this time around, but we're still figuring out in the community uh, the best time for these podcasts, given that we're split across so many different continents in the world. So and on again with us is Rob. Introduce yourself and... Hey, Mark. Glad to be here again. Um, no, there's not a lot to say about me. I'm just a developer. Um, I think that you know you, you were talking about the QV dev, uh, his, his implementation of a video. I would be really interested in looking through how it actually works. I've not had a chance to look at it. But that might be, that might be a topic for us. Magic sauce that he was able to figure out was actually this array buffer, I think called source buffer. It's unfortunately specific to Chrome right now, but it, because I tried doing this years ago and even recently and trying to convert the video data from um, Media Recorder API into data that can be passed into like a database or a socket is just a pain in the butt. So. I think one of the biggest pieces is actually a, a pretty recent type of array buffer called source buffer. I'm not sure, but we'll try and get him on um, one of these next times. I, the thing he's currently doing though is he's only saving the latest frames to gun. So that's why it's live streaming. So whenever you go to it, you're always, you're always looking at the same record and that record is just updating over time. And just for quick clarification against a lot of other decentralized projects, a lot of decentralized projects cannot update the same record. They can only immutably add to it. And so it's pretty cool that if you wanted to have an ephemeral Snapchat-like video session, you can just constantly be updating the same record um, without having to rediscover um, any other information at the architecture infrastructure level. Now, that they have that working. And once I get some bug fix in RAD, which is the storage engine, I want to actually do a recorded live stream video where all the frames are getting appended into a table and gun. And you could then actually scroll through the history of the video, um, kind of like a chat app. And that, and then use the test network that we have of a bunch of different users um, and get them to all be saving video data simultaneously to see how well Gun can scale up with large data points that are getting that are flooding the network um, concurrently. So that's going to be kind of the ultimate uh, test coming up here in the next several months to see how well Gun can scale with all of that. Um, yeah, and I would also be uh, curious to understand how. Um, the peer-to-peer -peer aspects of uh, this implementation work? Is it going off of a, a super node or is it actually sending this data more directly to the other peers? Because that's been one thing that uh, hasn't been clear for me is I, I think that there's still work on WebRTC that you want to have done so that at some point in the future, super nodes are not even required, is that right? Correct. So WebRTC allows for browsers to connect directly to each other without some in-between server they have to go through, but with a bunch of caveats. <laughs> um, WebRTC is a technology by Google, Apple, Microsoft, Firefox, etc., um, is extremely limited. In order to make those peer-to-peer -peer connections, you have to use a bootstrap uh, signaling server. And that's frustrating because that means you still have to depend upon some servers. I have 
made that better by baking that signaling server into all of the gun super peers. So you don't even have to rely upon one centralized bootstrap server. You can basically use any gun signaling, any gun relay peer uh, to do that. So it can be fully decentralized. But yeah, unfortunately, that's one of the caveats. Another caveat is that WebRTC, in my experience, seems to fail 60% of the time. Um, it works really well with inside of a 100-mile radius. I don't know why. Um, but outside of a 100-mile radius, for me and my experience, it, it fails a lot. Now, it, it certainly works. I've played a real-time asteroid-like video game built on gun um, with somebody from um, Australia, South America, the U.S., and Scandinavia in real time with just the WebRTC component relaying the data. So it, it, it does work, it's just not WebRTC itself very, um, it works well when it succeeds, but, <laughs> but oftentimes it will fail to connect in the first place to the people that you're trying to, to connect with. So moving back to then doing the decentralized video streaming, this gets a little bit more complex. So. You can do video streaming over WebRTC. And one of the best systems for that that I'm aware of is actually WebTorrent, which is a browser-based implementation of, um, of BitTorrent. However, QVDev was previously using WebTorrent and having some difficult just issues. It was failing, there was some problems, and, and WebTorrent is one of the better ones. And the reality is it's, because of WebRTC underneath that he was experiencing issues. So when he switched over to GUN, he had not added the WebRTC um, module. And that meant that the videos were being streamed through the relay peers. And that can be streamed through multiple relay peers. When we did the initial uh, demo and prototype a few months ago, it was being streamed through multiple different relay peers, so it was decentralized. Now we're going to get into the the bandwidth complexity of doing peer-to-peer -peer video or even multi-relay um, peer. Um, but I'm going to pause before getting into that because that's a whole new subject. Any questions on like the setup, WebRTC um, questions there? Well, do you have to have a server in or currently in order to connect with peers or is uh, there other ways to connect between two peers? Like one of the things I was doing, I was running gun on my LAN at home and I didn't know if there was a way for me to just go directly from one computer to the other or do I need to run a node process just to be able to do it? If you are in a local area network, um, something called multicast is enabled by default. Now multicast is a node.js only feature. It's not a browser feature unfortunately. But what this means is you do need to be careful that if you spin up multiple, if you have multiple laptops or devices in your house and you run gun on them, um, they're going to start automatically syncing with all of the other uh, devices in the local area network, uh, which is really cool, but also sometimes magical. Uh, and, and that's intentionally to support mesh networks. And that's um, a feature that Marty Malmi added just in time for the decentralized web summit which happened to be a camp out in the middle of the forest where we ran a peer-to-peer -peer telecom um, now outside of node.js and when you're dealing with browsers unfortunately the browser because of browser limitations of technology including webrtc but let's just put webrtc off the table for a second because it A, like I said, requires a signaling um, server, and B, it fails a lot. If we're, if we're not looking at that, if we're just dealing with the browser, you have to have at least an IP-facing relay peer. It doesn't have to be a, a public server in a cloud, um, but it has to have a publicly accessible IP address. So that could be a computer, um, a desktop computer at home. The, the issue is most desktop computers and laptops at homes or at businesses still have a router that's running a firewall on it that prevents you from connecting. So the unfortunate 
thing is that it's just that browser technologies and the internet itself down to routers and switches have this complicated structure like NAT traversal, hole punching, um, firewalls that effectively now make it impossible to do what everybody used to do with Napster and BitTorrent, which is just connect to any computer in the world. Um, and, and as a result, yes, most people are realistically running these relay peers on cloud-facing servers. But that doesn't mean it's not decentralized. If you put all of those relay peers on a single machine, on a single server, or I'd argue on a single cloud like Amazon, I would say it's centralized. But as long as that's split across OVH, DigitalOcean, Amazon, Google, some, uh, some home-based computers that are you know, running, that have bypassed a firewall, then I think it's sufficient to say it is decentralized even if it's dependent upon some servers and some clouds. Yeah, one of the things that I was thinking is possible with a gun as a technology, if a company wants to create a, a decentralized network, they can potentially uh, share their network with partners, allow partners to actually host nodes. And so then therefore that the company that while they may be releasing the client or the browser implementation, the network itself is still sort of shared out among a group of people. It's not just wholly owned by an, by one corporate entity. Exactly. And that is da -da -dun -dun the lead into Axe. <laughs> um, Axe is specifically a fill-in network while browser and router technology sucks. <laughs> um, so it's a short-term solution. And we probably, hopefully within two years, are actually going to take the hardware prototypes that happened at the decentralized web camp. And that was by more than just me. That was by Toronto Mesh team, as well as Libra router team, not to be confused with uh, Libra, the, the cryptocurrency from, um, from Facebook. And has nothing to do with that. Um, by multiple different teams, we ran hardware mesh network prototypes. And so within two years, I hope to actually move into doing a lot of hardware stuff to fix these foundational router problems and even um, upgrading browsers. That's what I'm doing with party.lols is a browser extension that's going to polyfill and shim and fix all these problems that uh, browsers have by default. Unfortunately, the adoption curve on getting people to buy, um, or even if you give it away for free, which I'm hoping I'll be able to do, um, router hardware or install browser extensions is an extremely difficult curve compared to people just going to a website and partaking in the D-Web. Um, so I'm going to break this down into a couple other pieces. It's all got to start in the browser from the beginning to get the adoption. And then you can expand into other areas. Again, a lot of other projects are doing it the reverse direction. They're going for the hardest adoption curve tech and then hoping that they get uh, adoption. It's, just, it's not working out as well. Um, and then temporarily, we're going to fix the browser problem with the more and more adoption by yes, having a bunch of people in our community running the Axe network. Everybody from Internet Archive to Hacker Noon to us to DTube to Notabug hopefully will participate in this network and all share and reuse each other's bandwidth traffic. So that way we can minimize the amount of, um, well, okay, I guess it's not minimizing really anything, I should say. It's minimizing centralization such that, yes, there are more there are more people running more peers. And again, I want to be clear, it's not just going to be corporations that um, do that or, or nonprofits like in an archive or, or um, community run things like um, Notabug and DTube. It, it's also going to be the one-click deploy button um, on Guns Readme that you can just one-click deploy to Heroku or that Docker container that just immediately spins up on now.sh, Glitch, um, or any other service provider. So anybody in the community will also be able to partake in this network uh, to help out. So it, it stays fully decentralized and no one company behind it. 
that sounds really cool. But if all these, so you've got, it sounds like multiple different systems all sharing the super peers. How, um, then does each, uh, application with its namespace, that namespace would be global between all of those. What are the implications if somebody comes onto this network and decides to use somebody else's namespace? How, um, I mean, does this mean that other people can maliciously tack all other people's data? How does that work? So two things here. <laughs> I'm going to state the scary controversial things first, but I don't want that to scare anybody because we do support um, application developers creating their own namespaced domains as people are used to. The goal of GUN <laughs> is to actually kill off this idea of domains. Um, domains is what has led to centralization on the internet that was decentralized. Facebook.com, Wikipedia, you know, like it is people go to these domains and then their data and their information and content gets locked into the walled garden of the domain. So I think it would actually be a bad idea if the default structure in gun were to encourage domain-based application development. Now, I want to be very clear, even though I've made a very strong statement against that, it's perfectly allowed and it's perfectly doable. And in fact, most of gun's success and adoption is coming through um, domain-based application developers who, who have a brand and are building that. Um, and, and, and again, and I'm not saying that to trivialize them in any way, shape, or form because I'm investing a lot of time and energy providing free labor and support and code <laughs> to these people, uh, nonprofits, community-run, and um, for-profit companies that I'm doing free labor for to integrate with. So I'm, I'm very strongly in alignment with just getting things out the door. But ultimately, it is going to be in the best interest for users, for-profit corporations, nonprofit institutions and committee run individuals to actually re use a universal graph, which is part of gun graph universe node. It's part of guns name um, to have this universal graph and why? Because of the two following things. First network effects. All of Hacker Noon users and all of DTubes users and all of internet archives users and all of, um, I'm going to even say Facebook's user as a result of party.lol um, and any centralized uh, company can be, can be shared. And I don't mean in like a creepy Cambridge Analytica way um, can, can be shared in the network. Um, so how do I, I explain this for people? Well, so it sounds it sounds to me like uh, in this scenario, you're talking about these applications placing their data on the user object. I would think because yes, then you would have let's say one person visiting different websites would have different user objects per website, and then this would allow each website to structure its data accordingly because you. The, Ultimately, you don't want to have, I mean, you, you don't want to go to Hacker Noon and then have their data carry over to some other website that's expecting a completely different structure that causes a ton of errors. No, 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 no. Actually, this is, the, uh, I'm saying no, but you're, this is the, you're exactly explaining it a, a better way than I, I was. Data portability is that um, you're a user and no matter what application you're using, your data is getting saved to you, right? And that, and that's in, if if it's private data, it's encrypted, so it doesn't matter. Nobody else can read it. But if it's public data, that's fine. You're you're authorizing it, and that's the private and public data um, exists in the network. That does not mean that people can access it. It just means that if you open up a different device, you can still access your data because you're going to be decrypting the data. Um, but the data portability of your data being with you rather than the application does mean that any new app you go to, you can reuse any of your 
data from anywhere else on that app if you desire, if you wish, if you, uh, it's, it's not like you're forced to. Um, and that actually means that now, yeah, you can tap into a whole lot more value add and value creation and it's a better experience for users. Now, if there is applications that are built specifically for a, a type of domain um, and you have people in the future that want to continue domain structured application development, that's fine, you can. But what I predict is going to happen is that the most successful domains that have the most users with the most data in them already are just going to become the de facto schemas, the de facto um, ontologies. Um, Tim Berners-Lee talks about this a lot with um, uh, what he hopes is, is being solid and, and I forget the phrase, a, a, a semantic web. Um, so my prediction is that it's going to be the most used apps that wind up having their application um, semantics that was previously specific to them that wind up becoming the open standards that the whole world winds up using for any and all other applications out there. And your data is now portable. So let's say Facebook is the leading standard for social networking data. It's not like Facebook will be able to have exclusive um, rights to that. In fact, they currently, in their own terms of service, do not have exclusive rights to that. A lot of people don't understand that, even though they are a proprietary company. Um, and so once you have this standard, even if Facebook started it because they're the most popular system, your data is going to be portable, and if you want to switch over to a different social network because you've lost trust in Facebook, you can do it the next second, the next minute, the next day, the next week. It doesn't matter. Um, you, can, you can quit Facebook and join a new network without any loss to your, your social graph because that's portable data that you own that belongs to you, not Facebook. Well, I think that's really cool. And all of this is extremely relevant <clears throat> information for me because as I'm trying to put together this framework, I really want to make sure that I'm uh, communicating best practices from you and, you know, where your vision is taking all of this stuff. Uh, because you know, I'm, I'm always looking at things from the, the perspective, like you say, of the application developers, the way that things, the way that businesses do things nowadays with it being domain specific. Um, and then I think for a lot of developers, this is going to be a, um, a mental shift that I think is not that hard to make, but it's still significant, which is realizing that um, we need to be putting data in the hands of the user and doing so in a way that allows that portability. Exactly. And now I'm going to make an appeal to domain-based um, application developers and when I previously said stuff that might be scary is, well, hey, um, if you jump into this, I don't want you to feel like you're going to lose control. You actually have the opportunity to gain, um, to, to, to become more well-known. Because if you push and deploy your domain-based app with Gun now, um, thinking that I might be utter, undercutting that in the future. No, actually, the faster you deploy, the more users you get on your domain-based app means that you become the leading de facto standard for the future. And this is in, strict, you know, in, in, in stark contrast to, again, I love Tim Berners-Lee, but they've spent 20 years trying to get academics to develop these ontologies and schemas for the semantic web that then through a standards process like the W3C and stuff like that, other companies and organizations adopt. And I think that is a good route to go. We need people going down that route as an experiment, but I don't think it has anywhere near the impact of adoption and success and industry proliferation as companies who just ship products that are loved by people and grow like crazy and they become the industry, you know, standard for a, a schema 
Um, yeah, I think the thing is with that other approach is that uh, it sounds great and all, but if you're expecting people to take on a learning curve, you're going to have a lot of resistance. And I think that with this approach, you've got something that's going to have a lot better feasibility, something that's just going to catch on. Because if it just works, people use it. I'm going to back up and quickly frame this in an evolution over time of, of software development. So originally, your IP, where you as a company made profit or money, was in the software itself, making sure it was closed source, and you sold copies of that data. Then you saw over time, it evolved into the SaaS, which was, oh, we're going to give away the software for free. Anybody can go to the website and use it, but it's the service that the software provides that we're going to be charging and making money and profit off of. And then there was a very subtle shift. I think it was, was fascinating, right? Um, from, from SaaS to social media. Suddenly, it wasn't that you're charging for the, the software as a service every month. It's actually, it's a software, social media or social networking is a SaaS, but it's free, right? So then how do you make money? Well, it's tapping into the realization that it's the network effect in the SaaS that has the most power behind it. And then unfortunately you get the, well, then how do you make money off of it? You sell ads and you are, become creepy like Google and Facebook and selling it. Monetize the data. Yeah. But then another shift happened. And I don't think other people really talk about this as a connection point, which is, well, you don't need to control the social network. You, all you need to control is the root that the social network grows off of. And that is Bitcoin. Bitcoin doesn't control the network, but because the entire network is built off of a common root um, block, well, guess what? You can't fork Bitcoin. Like you can try, but, but if you try to fork Bitcoin, like nobody's gonna switch on, e even, though, like, even though the social network code is available, even though the service, the SaaS is available, and even though the software, the proprietary code is all available, like all those things, the whole evolution of history of, of the transition over time is available for you for free to use in Bitcoin and just fork immediately, well, people aren't gonna follow because of the network effect has already been built on top of that um, initial block. So there, there is a now time, opportunity, and space for companies if they want to be the avant-garde, realizing the future of where money and profit is going to go. Um, you can't just build a Google competitor or a Facebook competitor these days because of the locked-in network effect. Um, but if you do own the the initial the initial key piece in an open source decentralized network hopefully there's not a coin attached to it hopefully there's not a token attached to it um then you as a company can i don't want to say control it but your brand is behind that and and that means you get world recognition, world reputation, everybody's going to be coming to you um, as the de facto standards. And now I'm predicting it's moving into the ontology or the schema of that data. Um, so if, if you as a corporation create the schema with product behind it that's successful enough that you get this adoption, you give it away for free, it's open source, anybody can fork the network and create networks of networks of your social network, you give away it as a service for free. Um, but if you wind up being the, the company that's behind the ontology, the schema that winds up getting that adoption success, well guess what, every other company and government and startup and network in the world is gonna be coming to you to use your schema. Um, and then I also predict that that will move into some creepy bad things as well, but uh, um, we have yet to get to that. So uh, getting people to shift over to the schema-based thinking is, is, is going to be enough of a transition. Um, yeah, there's some work to be done there. And I think there's an opportunity for companies to um, advertise and uh, capitalize on the, 
the pretty um, well-known issue now that uh, people's data uh, needs to be in a trustless system. And people, but people are gonna need to start to understand that trustless is a good thing. <laughs> if you look, you think of the word trustless in common, more common uh, thinking, it's like, why would I wanna be in a trustless network? <laughs> but um, I wanted to ask is, is Axe uh, something that developers can use now? Is this a network that as I'm writing my JavaScript and running it on my local host, I can go and connect to Axe and, and see a bunch of data that's out there being shared around, or is this something I need to wait for? Sort of. Um, so with all of the software that the community writes, we try and do a couple things. We try and create software that can be used independently um, without getting attached or vendor locked into us, but also be provide you know value add. Obviously, the community is very active. There's a lot of helpful, friendly people here. So Axe works today. Um, but it's kind of on a single peer basis, uh, or I should say single super peer basis. So I'm trying to optimize all the performance out of Axe for a single relay peer handling as many possible browser peers, um, in the network. And that's been successful with Hacker Noon in the sense that we were able to successfully handle their peak traffic. Um, and they have about like, at least according to similar web 15, uh, sorry, 13 million monthly active users on it. Now it started, it started to crash and restart <laughs> on every 10 minutes at peak load. So there's fixes I need to do, but I'm trying to get all of that figured out. And most of it is in the storage engine red, as I mentioned earlier, the bugs I'm trying to fix before saying, okay, now if there are multiple acts, um, super peers, having them connect together. If you want to know the algorithms for that, I discussed that in one of the earlier podcasts that we can link to, which is the Radix DHT behind Axe. Um, but if each individual piece of the network can be highly performant, then the network as a whole will be even more performant rather than just trying to throw all of these Axe peers together right now and, um, and, trying to figure out the performance of, of many peers together. So with that kind of ramble said, what that means is yes, you can use the Axe network right now. Um, and that will connect into the, the like the, the demo peer, the test peer, and then basically anybody else that um, is already running this, but it's probably not a good idea because when these different, apps that are already popular come have their kind of cycles of their users coming online and off is the network becomes very slow um, because we're still trying to scale things up past the 10 million um, user point. So yes, it's available now today, but you should probably run acts one off on your own right now. And then later, once we have things performing better, um, your Axe peer will just automatically connect to the whole rest of the network. And then we have more peers that are, that are in it. So sorta is the answer. So uh, shall we make a note to include some links for people? So that, cause you, you mentioned Axe, they can run it themselves. This is a thing I haven't seen yet. Um, is it different from running gun inside of a Node.js? Is this like a, a pre-packed, like ready package? It's got some stuff on top. How's, what is that? Since I think July, Axe has been enabled by default in Gun. So if you run a Node.js, if you run Gun in Node.js, then it's enabled by default. Now, it's not automatically connecting to other Axe peers, um, like I said. But I will, with it enabled by default, be pushing that into Axe code that happens as people upgrade. So just be very careful. If you are creating a domain-based application right now, please, please, please namespace yourself. Um, and also make sure you're running a private network and potentially disable acts. Um, but I am switching into having people opt out by default rather than opt in. And the ethics behind that is because ultimately you're going to get 
a pretty scalable backend um, networking service. We're not going to even have to run these things yourself. So I think, I think the ethics there is, is this is actually something of value add that most people will greedily want to use. Um, and if it's, if it's opt in by default, then what winds up happening is you're, you're not getting, you're not, it, it makes more of a freeloader system. Um, ooh, that's getting into that. Okay, let, let me back out of that for, for a minute. Uh, happy, if, if anybody listening disagrees with the ethics on that, please jump into the community because I'm very open to discuss it. Uh, ultimately, the conclusion is it's more ethical to have the network automatically form and grow so it's more scalable for everybody to use versus if they have to opt in, then that's going to force people to have to spend money um, uh, spinning up the room. It, it just makes more nosebleed getting started. Um, but happy to discuss if anybody disagrees. So, so backing up is... It, if you run Node.js by default with gun, um, Axe is enabled. And the sweet thing about the single peer Axe structure is already working is not only did it let us scale up to Hacker Noon's um, 13 million monthly active traffic, just barely, um, it's also automatically doing round robin load balancing in the network. And what that means is it's reducing the mesh networking behavior of gun. The default mesh networking behavior of gun, which I explained in the last video, the code of how it works, is to basically ask everybody in the network um, to reply to data requests. And that's good in a mesh network. Think of an example of a mesh network as self-driving cars going down the freeway. When they get in physical proximity to each other, you want all those peers multicast um, connecting to each other and sharing all information they can in that local mesh network. And then when they get disconnected from each other, they connect into other mesh networks and form their own data links. Um, and again, that's already happening on a LAN network in, um, if you're running GUN at your house on multiple different devices on the same wireless network, they're gonna be in mesh networking mode. Axe dynamically change, shifts things away from that. Axe still works with the mesh networking code, so it's, it's purely emergent, but it's then saying, hey, we're trying to get global connectivity from London to San Francisco to Tokyo to Moscow to you know, like anywhere, right? So it, you don't want every peer in the network sharing all the data with everybody else in the network. This is not scalable. Um, so Axe winds up doing this sweet thing where when you make a data request in the mesh network of gun, Axe starts to load balance that across other peers that are, that are neighbor connected that are subscribed to the same data sets. And we can do this fully decentralized without, any, without introducing any centralized logic while still having um, a scalability go up. And here's how. As it's load it load balances and asks three other peers in the local network, um, maybe I shouldn't say local network, but that, that are neighbor peers. Yeah, the, the immediate region that or close by, some, some sort of proximity that's uh, a known range that is preferred. Yes, and this is network proximity. Um, hopefully that will overlap with physical proximity, but in this case it's network proximity. And if those three peers reply with data, they all run what's called the fast hash on the response to that data. And I mentioned that in the last talk at the coding level. And that fast hash lets the, the Axe um, peer, Axe is potentially running in, in many of them, but any Axe-enabled peers will check to see if all of the responses share the same hash. If they do, that means we have an availability guarantee of gun already, people connected to the network, plus a data consistency guarantee that this is the latest data that the network happens to have. And then responds back to you, the person who asked for the data, with that response. And now we don't have to send the request out to anybody else. However, if the hashes are all different from the peers that are replying, then that indicates that the data is either being constantly mutated 
or that there is not any type of um, latest up-to-date agreement, like that the peers in the network have been offline, haven't been up-to-date, and there's just, there's disagreement on what the, quote, latest state of the data maybe is. And, and as a result, as long as those hashes are coming in different, the act super peer can then continue the load balancing process. And it just keeps on asking randomly more and more different peers in the network until, um, until potentially, if literally no peer in the world <laughs> um, has agreement on this data, that acts load balancing structure then automatically degrades, it, it, it devolves, it regresses into the mesh network algorithm, which is so cool. Because that means you can get like centralized level scalability with highly optimized routing and load balancing without sacrificing any of the decentralized um, protocol or peer-to-peer -peer components underneath. Because if things fail, if you don't get the optimization, then it degrades over time. But if you do get localized optimization, um, you get the performance boost. That sounds incredible. So one of the things I was thinking about as you're describing this, is it, do we have currently some different uh, networks that we can use for different stages of our application development where they're shared. Like one of the things that I think I've seen from the people working in the cryptocurrency field is that they'll have a develop net. Like they're running, uh, you know, not production ready code of their cryptocurrencies within a network. And then there's a production ready network where, you know, this currency needs to be real and maintain its value. Is there something like that for gun developers? Because I'm thinking it would be nice to be able to launch an application that is in sort of a beta mode. Like I want to see it fly, but maybe it's a little early. I'm not confident in it yet, but I'd love to have a bunch of people use it and even go so far as putting it out there on an Axe network. Is, have you, what is your thinking around that approach? Yes. So there's two appropriate responses I have for this in terms of my bias. And then there's a bunch of other options. The first um, point is to actually all use the same network, but that's where the application namespacing comes in, is to simply use a different key. So at the root level of your application, when you call gun, you know, when you initialize gun, um, having a name like um, substrate, although I think you're switching to the name weir, um, substrate test. And then as you're testing, all the data and test network data is just going to be contextually keyed under that. And then when you go into production mode, you just drop the dash test. So that way the, the key is substrate. Now, unfortunately, what that will do is, is it means that um, all of the test data will still be existing in the network, but just be now disconnected from the graph. So it won't be accessible. Um, so that can lead to problems, but that certainly changes. Like now, now any new data that's being saved, even if it was previously the same, sh should have been in the same context or path in the graph, uh, because the root key is different, it's going to be doing a different root traversal, which again, is a type of data inconsistency problem, but you could use that in gun to kind of fracture your network into a test network and into a um, production network. My second answer is, even though my first answer was, yes, this is my opinion to weigh on how um, you should do it. My second answer is I'd rather you not do that. I'd rather you actually still just go ahead and push into production all data and code. Um, and the reason why is because, at least in our community, we've found tremendous success with people just shipping stuff, even if it's completely screwed up, <laughs> um, and, and growing from there, whether that be Hacker Noon's extraordinarily scrappy mentality that they do even outside of gun, just ship, 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 or whether there was the chat app in the, the Slack alternative in our community that people jumped in earlier by at in, in A-R-O, Nick, I think it's Nick. Um, that he just like, hey, I'm using this privately with my friends. And then he accidentally leaked 
the link to that thing and we all jumped in and we just started spamming it and it worked. It was great. It was fun. It was exciting. Um, is, is going back to my earlier comments about network effects is, is even if you do things wrong in production or in testing, that really does suck. But, um, having the users and the growth and people jumping on and just using it and shipping, you wind up learning so much so fast. That's so valuable. Even if you have to maybe occasionally sever the network um, with the old data or um, create backward polyfills. My final example of this is with not a bug, the peer to peer version of Reddit is there was a cryptographic um, uh, weak link that I knew about um, and was, but knew that the rate at which the community was growing uh, like a year ago was not going to be fast enough that anybody was going to find the bug. So I did not disclose it um, because it, I knew it just was not going to be a concern. However, the not a bug showed up on the table and their community exploded with people posting all this politics and crazy Reddit stuff anonymously on, on not a bug. So be careful when you're browsing uh, the, the site. And it's a lot of fun, but, but be careful. Um, and somebody came along and started hacking not a bug, looking for flaws, which then they found, you know, that it's built on God and they started looking at God and my cryptography and they found the, the security weak link and they, uh, they abused it and exploited it. Um, fortunately, they, they disclosed it to Goldfish and Goldfish then disclosed it to me. And I was like, dang it, I've been sitting on this thing for like eight months thinking like it's not gonna be a problem because who on earth in their right mind is actually gonna be, you know, spelunking through the cryptography code. Um, it wasn't that bad of a problem, just as a disclosure. Um, and I, I do feel, I, I feel like it was the right thing at the time. <laughs> um, because if I disclosed it, the issue is anybody would know about it and be able to go and exploit it. Um, but if I didn't, but I wouldn't, but, but I didn't have time to fix it. Um, this was like one of the worst years of my life. Um, I had, I, I, I did not have time, um, money or funding or basically anything to, to fix it. Um, so just even though I'm like ratting myself out, my, my mindset on the ethics was if I do disclose it, it's opening a vulnerability that cannot be fixed for at least a year. Um, if I don't disclose it, then at least in order for it to be exploited, somebody's gonna have to be really, really interested to go and dig, dig it out. Now, hopefully you haven't lost too much trust in me, um, but I do wanna disclose that, that we got that fixed. It kind of broke all of NAB, um, but we did a, a, a backwards compatibility upgrade for it and we moved on and we were successfully able to still grow everything even though the, the beta testing even, even though Goldfish came along, built peer-to-peer -peer Reddit, it was a tremendous success with, with code that I stated was not production ready. That was test, that was only in, for testing um, and development purposes. Um, and, and that shift, because of Goldfish, basically single-handedly has thrown Gun into being, quote, used in production, even though Gun's not production ready yet, um, from, from a disclaimer and why I make these academic statements. So there, there are no remaining um, disclosed or undisclosed bugs known in C, Gun's cryptography module currently. Doesn't mean there aren't bugs there, but there are no backdoors, problems, cheats, exploits, hacks that is currently known to the team or as I'm aware in the community. Um, hopefully you'll trust me on that because <laughs> I said I wasn't disclosing before, but, but for ethical reasons. And now that gun is in production, it, 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 I do have an ethical obligation to disclose any security exploits. Um, one actually happened about four months ago. Somebody um, contacted me privately about it. And I, had to, I basically dropped everything else I was doing um, to get it fixed within the month. And then I published and we disclosed 
um, at the point of publishing, which was uh, which is considered the the ethical thing to do in the security community. So, um, but as of now, nothing else is known. Got it. All right. Well, you know, the, we, there are so many things that were just covered, and uh, I've got a bunch of things on my mind, but we're, we're coming towards the end of our session here. So I want to just throw out a couple topics and maybe we'll be able to remember them for next time. One of the things that's been on my mind is OTP, uh, the one-time use passwords. And there's some uh, push in the security world to get people to start using hardware keys. There are these, um, like a YubiKey is an example. I have a couple of them. They're still, in my opinion, too expensive, but the, I, I got one for 10 bucks uh, on a promo with Wired. <laughs> they're, they're normally like 50 bucks. Um, but they're really cool. It's basically just a little USB keyboard that generates an OTP password. And uh, I was curious if there's, seems like it's still kind of hit or miss which companies are supporting this. I know that you can use it with Dropbox. You can um, use it, I think, with LastPass and Dashlane the password managers, so you can protect your password manager with a hardware key. And um, I was hoping to find a library for it in the, the popular JS framework. There's a, there's a password or uh, authentication framework called Passport, and I didn't see one yet, but I'm, I assume there's gonna be. I don't really know how these things work under the hood, but that was one thing that's, that's been on my mind is if this would be something we could bring to gun um, and then uh, there was something else that I, I wanted to ask about, but I've lost it already. <laughs> already possible. So this is why C exists as a shim or um, polyfill, is even though web crypto is being used underneath, my philosophy was that most of these cryptography libraries are running in an, a non-secure enclave. It, they're not running in an enclave. So that means they can be tampered with or you as a user don't have guarantees with that. So C specifically is a wrapper um, to these different cryptography libraries that allow those cryptographic operations to be remotely passed to your YubiKey or to a browser extension like MetaMask, party.lol, IRS, and stuff like that. Or if none of those are available, run directly in the browser with the cryptography libraries that are available. So this is again, part of my idea of progressive enhancement, rather than starting with the UB, uh, whatever, whatever the hardware, what is the hardware uh, thing called? Yeah, the YubiKey, because the, so the company's YubiCo and then the key itself is YubiKey. Okay, so you, you have one of the YubiKeys. So rather than starting with that, my philosophy is, okay, there is cryptography available in the browser, let's use that. But let's design the architecture of C as it already is in place, such that then, well, maybe at some point, like people wind up using the application and loving it so much, they want, they want to, want to, want to, uh, the cryptography that's just showing up in the browser or on this web page. you know, who knows where they can trust it. And so they do decide as a result of successfully already using the application and building up trust and enjoying the value out of the application that they're like, okay, I'm gonna go ahead and install you know the the electron version of that app or the browser extension um, that it is requesting like metamask or party.lol. And without any change to the application um, code, um, once they install that, C is going to automatically start using the, the cryptography from the extension, not from the application. Um, and then anybody who's up for taking like YubiKey's API and, and plugging it into um, party.lol or MetaMask, I think MetaMask already might have this. When I was talking with Dan Finley um, and Aaron, who are the founders of MetaMask, they're saying that they, they already have some prototypes of this working. Um, and then I also recently heard another team state that there is now a browser spec that a couple browsers, I think like Firefox, have already implemented directly in JavaScript um, without needing a browser extension, um, a hardware key um, passing. So as long as somebody's familiar with that API um, or knows the YubiKeys API, you can drop this into C and gun now 
and have your user account powered by your uh, YubiKey system. Nice, nice. Okay. Okay. I'm getting some audio, getting problems, some audio here. problems here. Give me a sec, give me a sec. Testing one, two, three. Can you still hear me? Yeah, sorry about yeah, that. Sorry about that. No problems. Let's just go ahead and um, wrap it up and say goodbye. And uh, I'm really excited for next week, too, to discuss some of the things that we didn't even get to <laughs> chat about because you brought up so many fascinating subjects. Uh, you're, you're, you're really good. You're really good, Rob. You're really good. Well, thanks. I'm, oh, glad, thanks. I'm glad I can help. You know, a couple of things that um, I'll just leave you with the thoughts that maybe we can resume with next week, which was one, we were talking about maybe having a discussion around chat applications and what sort of architecture you would use for a chat application because you want to be able to get the last uh, messages always from what, in my mind, is the bottom of the queue, the most recent to me is the bottom, but I guess you could just call it the top as well. Um, I have some thoughts on that, but I wanted to hear your input. Um, and then I was thinking as we were talking about application developers, I think going back to, you know, for a lot of people, this is going to be a real mental shift. And I think that it will be good to maybe present what are the practices, like the best practices for people in more of a use case directed uh, fashion. Like let's say for example, an application developer already has a system that is using some sort of more traditional, um, maybe they've got a Postgres or they've got a Mongo backend. And then they, they're really excited about the capabilities of gun. They want to be able to do some integration. Um, it would be good to, I think, have a guide that sort of shows people, well, here's the approach you would take for this. But if you're really excited about getting onto this network where lots of other servers are available to you and you can just have your users um, put their data into the Axe network and you don't have to be the only owner or, or the only uh, host provider, then here's the other, here's another way to approach it. That was one thought I had. I don't know if you think that that's something that, is there a big difference between the approaches? Very interesting subjects, and, and I also have a lot of thoughts on them. Um, so I, I'm, let's definitely pick up on that in uh, next week podcast, and hopefully we can also have QB Dev on to talk about his video streaming experience, and then you can expand on on some of the, um, I think you said data structures that you're thinking about with respect to the um, the schemas, um, like with substrate and weir and stuff like that, because. The, the more that like QV dev and you after I've been talking this entire time um, can pitch in on those data structures that you guys have already, you're already building in the community, then even faster that people are just going to be able to grab those modules. We're and the uh, substrate or we're, and then QV devs uh, video streaming and, and just start. Yeah. Uh, pushing these out. So let's save that for, for next week, the distributed systems, algorithms behind chat um, applications and uh, data structures and ontologies to, and semantics to those data structures. Okay, perfect. Oh, and I've got one other, which is that I realized, you know, you could package up your JS bundle in the database itself. And I wonder if there's a possibility to serve up your application as a gun node. So you could have just this really simple little gun um, page, it's a page that has gun on it, and then it pulls down a node, and then that loads your application. I would be curious to see that work, or, or maybe somebody's already done it. Yes, uh, um, Yashin and Jacob in the community are already working on that. The Dimensions team behind Maskbook and TestSirCube, which are the, one of the alternatives to party.lol, um, are wanting to go in that direction. I'm trying to find some time to build out tooling for that as well. And I'm pretty sure there was another person in the community a few months ago that was using service workers to do something and it had a working prototype um, a few months ago as well. So yes, there's, there's actually quite a few people in the community on that subject as well. That, that, that would, that's a full pat podcast just on that subject alone. So we should pull some of those people in Jacob, Yashin, um, and maybe the mask book team. Yeah, let's do that. Let's message them and get them in here. 
All right. Well, thanks again, Mark. I'm going to close it up. Uh, have a great week and look forward to seeing you next time. Yeah. Thanks so much, Rob. Yeah. Thank you for helping move the conversations forward, having uh, jumping and doing these and recording them and getting them uploaded. Super appreciated. I'm looking forward to he uh, hearing and seeing from everybody else uh, who's listening to the DWeb podcast next week. And uh, have a great weekend to all of you.